Come from a loving family, big family. Education was very important. Fast forward, we had lunch, he gave me a job. I had a hard hat and everything. I didn't do any like real work, but you know, I was there. Things started to take off and I had a reason not to go to law school. So I wasn't all in right away when he first told me the idea because I didn't necessarily see the vision. Remember that thing I told you about? He's like, I started a WhatsApp group and it grew from, you know, about 10 people to like 600 people. It was a mixture of, you know, people believing in me, people believing in my skill set. One of the biggest problems with black people across the globe in terms of accelerating our advancement in society is that we think too small. And our thesis is that the globe is going to turn to Africa to fill those jobs. But the people of Africa, they're resilient. It's hard for black founders, man, just to be real. Like, it's tough. Have ultimate belief in yourself. Don't let anything get you down. There's always another opportunity around the corner. What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Roger Roman, co-founder of Afroblocks, the global pan-African freelance marketplace and collaboration platform. Roger hails from Chicago, and in his neighborhood, the Roman name is well known. He was preordained to be a lawyer, but Roger took a different path, business. He leveraged his degree from Howard University to immerse in industries as varied as politics, construction, and eventually marketing. Roger has been spotlighted in the New York Times, Black Enterprise, and VentureBeat. But it was when co-founder Tongai Choto came calling that Roger saw the chance to take on a massive opportunity the emergence of Africa in the global tech marketplace. The continent has over 450 million Gen Z and young millennials, all eager, ambitious, and tech-enabled. Fertile ground for a startup like Afroblocks. So listen in, Roger has a great story. Our episode is sponsored by Founders Live, a global platform built to inspire, educate, and entertain the modern entrepreneur. And great news, Founders Live has just started to open up in-person events. And of course, with safety and audience comfort fully designed into the experience. Be sure to visit founderslive.com or check for a link in the show notes. And please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. We're available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, drop us a five-star review on Apple or podchaser.com. And make sure to tell your friends about us. Who knows? Maybe they'll subscribe too. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Roger Roman, co-founder of Afroblocks, the global pan-African freelance marketplace and collaboration platform. They are building the resource for devs, designers, and virtual assistants. Welcome to the show, Roger. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to talk about Afroblocks and join the pod. All right. Awesome. To start us off, why don't you just tell us exactly what is Afroblocks? Yeah. So Afroblocks is a pan-African freelance marketplace, right? What does that mean? So basically, it's a marketplace that allows uh, anyone across the globe to hire African talent for freelance jobs, in particular, software development, mobile app design, graphic design, UI, UX design virtual assistants, copywriting, video and audio editing, so on and so forth. So we actually created a platform that allowed these talented African freelancers to be able to connect with people across the globe because prior to that, it was really hard for them to do that. Great. And I love it. Uh, you know, we got to meet each other in Techstars, so I've been following for a while. But before we get more into the company, let's hear a little bit about Roger. 
Where did you grow up? Where are you from? I could talk about myself all day. <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief. So originally from Chicago, born and raised on the west side of Chicago, come from a loving family, big family. You know, education was very important. Went on to Howard University in Washington, D.C. Really enjoyed my time there. Probably too much. So spent some time there. And interestingly, I've, I've had a very uh, unorthodox route into tech. My first job after undergrad was actually working with a local real estate developer in D.C. Okay, hold hold on there. I got to hear more about this big family. So like when you say big family, how big's a big family? So immediately, it's just my brother and I. But my dad's had nine sisters and two brothers. And my mom <laughs> had six brothers and sisters. So a lot of cousins. And we grew up very tight knit. You know, it's a pocket on the west side of Chicago. If you ask about the Romans, I'm pretty sure anyone you run into will know a Roman or one, of, you know, somebody from the family. So, yeah. Grew up with a lot of brother cousins or sister cousins, and, and it was fun. It was a great experience, you know, great, great childhood. Are any of them entrepreneurs? There are some entrepreneurs. We do have some small business owners, and we do have some people in tech, not even tech entrepreneurs, but actually my older cousin, Kimberly, she was the person who was the, the first person I knew who did anything tech. You know, she was an IT consultant. She went to school for that. She actually passed away recently, but she was my motivation to, to jump into tech. Yeah, she... She really helped me, you know, see someone who looked like me from where I was from, who actually knew about computers and wasn't considered a nerd. You know what I mean? Like she was pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, we got some tech. We got some business owners. You know, I come from a family of hustlers. So, you know, even people who had a full time job, everybody had a side hustle <laughs> or something that, you know, they were doing to make money on, on the side. So that entrepreneurial spirit was was always there. Do you remember when you were growing up thinking about with all this family and probably with a family that big, it's going to run the spectrum of like having a neighborhood where you'd have people who are doctors and lawyers. And do you remember thinking about from your own perspective, what kind of interests you or what you thought you might want to do? I was tapped to be a lawyer very early on. That was the path that my family had set me on. They're like, hey, you're smart. You love to talk. We can't shut you up. You're going to be a lawyer. And like, that was it. <laughs> like, I, I didn't, I didn't have any choice in the matter. So when I went to Howard, I majored in English because I wanted to improve my writing. I can go to law school and I uh, spent years studying the LSAT and all those things. But eventually, you know, I realized that that wasn't the career for me. I had a bunch of internships in college and I, I wasn't feeling it. You know, I was looking for something else and I, I found entrepreneurship to kind of be the route for me. But yeah, I was tapped. I was tapped to be a lawyer. Even to this day, like if there's a lull or if I'm, you know, between projects or something, before I started Afroblox, you know, my mom would say, are you thinking about law school still? You know, you can always go back and go to law school. So, so Yeah. They're hanging on to the dream, huh? <laughs> I mean, I'm almost 40 years old, man. I'm still getting pushed <laughs> to law school. That's funny. Law school is really interesting because I think the law is one of these things. It sounds, I won't say romantic, but the notion of doing law and being a lawyer, I think ends up being much more attractive than what the reality ends up being. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. So, people either, you know, along the journey or once they get into it, you know, it's like, this is not necessarily what I what I signed up for. So you come out of Howard. What did you major in at Howard? Um, so I was actually an English and African-American studies dual major. Originally, I was going to study political science, but I decided to do English because I wanted to improve my writing. And African-American studies was my minor. But after sophomore year, I, I had audited and taken so many African-American studies classes just because they were interesting, right? Like. Here I am, this kid from Chicago. I went to a majority white high school. 
you know, even though I'm from a black neighborhood, I'm from the, the hood per se, I went to a majority white high school. Then I go to this black college and I take these African-American studies classes and like they were just interesting, man. Like I would go when I wasn't registered for the class and I would just sit and take notes. My friends would make fun of me because they're like, why are you going to a class that you're not in? But, you know, it was just it was just fun to learn about myself and learn about, you know, my people and how we fit into the world. So, yeah, English and African-American studies, that was a dual major. English wasn't so fun. I'll admit that. But the skills that I learned being an English major, I use to this day. So I can't be too mad about it. What was the challenge with it? Is it the subject matter or? You know, it's writing and it's very subjective, right? Professors, every professor has a different style of writing that they like. I, you couldn't do generalist work, right? Like I couldn't just kind of set a style and write. Each professor I had to actually hone into their style. And it took me a while to learn that. So needless to say, my, my African-American studies grades were a lot better than my English <laughs> grades uh, <laughs> on the transcript. But I got through it. I, got, I finally made it through and learned how to write different styles and, and it's worked out. That's great. I mean, like that's, you know, I was an engineer as an undergrad and I do not practice engineering anymore, but there, there was some foundational aspects of problem solving and how to think about things technically that I'm grateful for having gone through the gauntlet of uh, engineering school. So you come out of Howard, what was attracting you about the professional world? What did you think you wanted to do coming out of there? Honestly, I had no idea. So it was, the situation I had taken the LSAT, but I had taken it kind of late. So I knew I was going to have to take a year off before, you know, I applied to law school. And I did really well, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I got lucky when I was in undergrad, I did a lot of like community organizing and, you know, helping out in local campaigns and, and things like that. So I had quite a decent network in DC. And just so happened after graduation, I'm walking back to my apartment with my family behind me. I got my cap and gown. I see one of the guys that I worked with on one of the campaigns who was actually a developer. He was just starting a, a you know commercial development firm. He asked, what, what was I doing? I'm like, uh, I think I'm going back to Chicago in a week, <laughs> in a couple of weeks because I, you know, I don't know. And he's like, well, let's have lunch next week, you know, and, and maybe I can help you get an opportunity. Fast forward, we had lunch. He gave me a job. Um, I was basically a gopher at this firm. You know, it was really, it was cool, you know, worked there for a while, picking up coffee, running errands, doing things like that. Then I finally begged these guys. They, they actually want a project to build a school in Washington, D.C. And I begged them to put me on the project because I was just tired of, you know, sitting around the office and grabbing coffee and stuff. And they did. They made me an assistant project manager on this project. And Three months out of college as an English African American studies major, I'm on site <laughs> organizing a, a bull, you know, a raise and organizing, you know, the build and, and hiring subcontractors and things like that. So it was a good time. I, I definitely learned a lot. Did you have your own hard hat? I had a hard hat and everything, man. I mean, I was, you know, I, I didn't do any like real work, but you know, I was there. I was there. I saw the guys eating their lunch at 10 a.m. when when everyone else was just strolling into the <laughs> office. And, yeah, I got a real good taste for it. You know, I was working in a trailer, so it was cool, man. It, you know, it was a, there was definitely some learning curve. You know, I was trying to learn the business as we went. You know, there's a lot to it, but you know, it was a great experience. Definitely, I, I use some of those lessons to this day for sure. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting place to start. Like you said, it was kind of opportunistic, which is awesome. The structure of it, I mean, it's, it seems like it's a very structured industry in that, you know, the process is fairly established. It's not a lot of deviation. You do these steps and follow this pattern so you can learn a lot about business in general when you have some structure to lean on like that. So what was after that? I will say I'll add to this to that too. The whole idea of outsourcing and contracting and subcontracting it originally entered my, my framework at that point. 
Because before that, I always thought, you know, there's a construction company that builds a building and, you know, they build everything. And I found out like, no, there's plumbing company, there's a cement company, there's a cleaning crew, there's all of these different pieces going together to build this one product. So that was when I originally got, you know, subcontracting and working with outsourced talent into my mind. Unfortunately, we finished the school project, but that was right in the midst of the, the market crash. So the real estate market crashed. Here I am. I finished the school project. I got, you know, a, a huge project, $50 million budget under my belt. And, you know, it's great. We finished it on time. And my bosses say, hey, we can't pay you <laughs> for the next year. And maybe you should consider law school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. Were they talking to your mom? No, no. They were attorneys themselves before they got into development. So they said, hey, you know, we'll give you, they gave me a great severance package. And, you know, it wasn't a brutal firing or anything or layoff. Like they, they took care of me. And actually they even supplemented my, I had to take some more courses, you know, just in prep for law school. And they supplemented some of that too. So, you know, I spent six months just kind of like studying and hanging out and trying to figure things out. And out of nowhere, a friend of mine from college comes with this idea for a video game. And I'm like, ah, oh, video game, whatever. It's not, you know, it's a pipe dream or whatever. And um, we actually met up and he showed me his notebook and I, it was, you know, so thick. It was like textbook size notebook with all of these notes and specs and, you know, gameplay and all these things. And I was impressed at that point. And, you know, I, he was begging me to help. Well, I won't say begging, but he was asking me to help. And, you know, I decided to help him out and things started to take off. And I had a reason not to go to law school. So came to L.A. to build this video game studio and worked on that for about three years, man. And it was a tough, tough tough run you know we raised a little bit of a seed fund but we had no idea what we were doing we were in over our heads you know we were kind of learning as we go and it's hard to do that when you're you know you're a black male or, or three black male founders so worked on that for three years and yeah it, it uh eventually it ended and <laughs> it's funny my co-founder actually went to law school he left the startup to go back to law school and yeah went back to the east coast and i stayed here how have you escaped law school it's been chasing me man it just keeps coming into your life every step. You turn the corner and there's law school. And, you know, I decided to stay here in L.A. I had an advisor. This guy, Keith Bolsky, very instrumental in uh, helping me break into tech, man. He uh, he was a big video game guy. He was actually one of the guys behind uh, Tomb Raider. And he said, hey, look, you got some skills, man. You got, you know, you know some things. You've learned some stuff. Maybe you can package that and work as a freelancer. And, you know, I know some people who will hire you in design, who will hire you for copywriting and things like that. You know, maybe you should stay here and do that until you find your next opportunity. So that's exactly what I did. You know, at, at this point, we're at about 2014, 2015. Yeah, I stayed here, worked as a freelancer, had a few side projects that I worked on that didn't amount to much. And some of that time, I leave the story out a lot because it's just kind of like a memory I don't I don't think about. But I actually had a record label at one point, you know, and, and had some success there and then, you know, play some records on the charts and things like that. But I was really just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And um, eventually the freelance marketing stuff was the thing that kind of led the way I was making money from that, keeping the lights on. And I started to hire more people just because I couldn't take on the jobs myself. So, you know, I brought a few team members on and, and that was it. Like I, I've been working on that the past six years, man, until Tungai uh, reached out to me asking me if, if I could help him with his startup, uh, Afroblock. So tell me, before we get into Afroblocks, so video games and record labels and moving to L.A. across the country. I mean, what gave you the confidence to enter into these industries that, you know, let's call it what it is. You weren't exactly, you know, on a path that was sort of set where you studied entertainment or 
design or something that would be kind of more obvious, I guess, to some folks in terms of career path? What gave you the confidence to hop into these things? With both, like with the video games and the music, it was more of a hobby, right? Like, you know, I'm a huge rap fan, huge music fan in general, right? Like I love music. It's a part of my life. So all of these opportunities just kind of came. And I think it, it had a it was a mixture of, you know, people believing in me, people believing in my skill set and believing that I could actually help them in these places. Because in each one, it wasn't, you know, the music record label thing wasn't my original idea. It was it was a cousin who actually, you know, had some success in music. And he, he said, hey, you, you know, business, you know, <laughs> help me out with this record label. And like, that's kind of how that started. And it was the same thing with the video game thing. You know, I played video games, been playing in my, my entire life. So, you know, it was just a mixture of something I like to do um, and maybe pushing in that direction. In terms of the confidence, being where I'm from, you know, being from the west side of Chicago and, you know, going to Howard, I feel like there was a lot of people who invested into my success, right? Like they invested, my family, they put a lot into me to be successful. So, you know, I've never wanted to sell myself short. I've always felt like, hey, you know, you can do great things. You can accomplish great things. And that was the motivation. Like, it was crazy, man. I, I came to LA. I didn't have much money. Like, I, that severance package had <laughs> had pretty much been, you know, drained at that point. And, you know, I was doing a little few side things and you know, it was tough. But I definitely I had that ultimate belief in myself. And I, I think any founder and specifically any black founder you talk to that has had a modicum of success will tell you the same thing. Like, that confidence is is, is, is invaluable. And it's not for everybody, right? I mean, at any step in that journey, you could have doubled down on, let me just keep hammering it in development. Let me just keep hammering in the gaming world. Let me just keep, you know, pursuing the, the label thing or the music industry, right? But you had this, my perspective, you've got this ability to say, okay, what's out there? What am I interested in? What am I good at? And how can I bring that to the table? So... That makes a lot of sense. And we're going to learn about how that has brought you to your startup in a minute, but we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Roger Roman from Afroblocks. Hi, this is Nick Hughes from Founders Live, a growing global community of entrepreneurial inspiration, education, and entertainment. The Founders Live movement includes unforgettable live streamed happy hour pitch competitions held in over 50 cities worldwide. And the monthly events are coupled with a growing online platform where articles, videos, expert talks, technologies, and tools together help create world-class entrepreneurs. Our vision is to raise the tide for all startup regions, but specifically second and third tier markets around the world to ultimately power the pulse of early stage entrepreneurship and creativity. We'd love for you to be a part of the movement. Check it out and join for free at founderslive.com. So we're back with Roger from Afroblocks. So you mentioned, you, you teased it up a little bit that you were chugging along, doing this great sort of marketing agency type work and building a little business there. And then this guy named Tongai shows up. So tell us about how you met him and how that came to be. So Tongai and I met back in 2015. He was working at a fintech startup. It was actually a blockchain Bitcoin startup. They were building a remittance platform that allowed you to send money back to Zimbabwe exclusively using Bitcoin. You know, it was really cool. And they I was hired, my company was hired actually to help build out their marketing department. So I served as an interim CMO of sorts for a while. And Tangai was the lead developer there. And it was really fun, you know, fun project to work on. You know, we were doing some good in the world and really trying to help people. And Tangai and I became, you know, we became friends after that. I wouldn't say we were best friends or anything like that, but we were boys. You know, he would check up on me. I would check up on him. We kind of followed each other's career. As I moved on to other projects, he was still there. 
I want to say around Christmas of 2019, he reached out and said, hey, I'm working on this thing. You know, I really want to get you, you know, I want to get your input on it and what you think. And I was like, oh, it's cool. You know, you know, hit me up. And then I didn't hear from him for a while. And he finally followed up with me a couple of months later. And he's like, bro, you know, remember that thing I told you about? He's like, I started a WhatsApp group and it grew from, you know, about 10 people to like 600 people. And now it, there's something here. I just don't, you know, I need some help in figuring out how, how do we build on this? So we just got to work. He sent me a deck that he had put together and uh, it was rough, you know, but we kind of fleshed it out. We spent a couple of months working on the business model and how it would work and, you know, everything. And I want to say by May, you know, we were all in, I think May of 2020. You know, we both decided that this was something that was scalable, it was lucrative, and we were making money, and we both jumped in full-time as founders. And he accepted me as a co-founder, and we've taken off from there. So tell us your thought process around, again, so, you know, makes a lot of sense. You work together, you kind of keep in those parallel careers and figure out, and then it sort of emerges that maybe you could work together. But again, you had sort of this business, and it sounds like it was doing pretty well. And It was. <laughs> You could have been just like, I work nine to five and I hire a bunch of people and I'm good. Tell us about what was the thought or the sort of thing that said, okay, I'm going to go do this. The thing about the marketing agency was that it was never the, the end for me. I always felt like it was just something that I could do to make money and to still, you know, learn and practice and grow and meet founders and, and do all those things while I, you know, can keep the lights on. And it was actually doing better than I anticipated. But I, I didn't look at it as a scalable thing, right? Like I wanted to I wanted to build something. It was always there that I want to build something that can actually scale and be, you know, this big entity. So with the marketing thing, it was a grind, man. Like you're always grinding for clients. You know, you're always, you know, grinding, keeping, you know, your contractors and your staff happy. And like, it's just a constant grind. And that wasn't the life I necessarily wanted to build. I felt like I could, you know, with PCM, you know, it was very successful could build it up to be huge. And I still do take some small consulting contracts or whatever, but I didn't want to build a business where it depended on me 100% to exist, right? I felt like that's not a real business, a scalable business. That's more of a, a small business and it, it becomes a job and you're trapped to it. And, you know, I got two small kids. I wanted to, you know, start figuring out how to have that work-life balance and the grind that I was pushing with the agency just wasn't, wasn't it. So to make a long story short, the stars just aligned uh, about March. I was helping Tungai out early in the year and about March, you know, things started to shut down because of COVID and we had to put a lot of our contracts on, you know, just kind of pause them at the moment because some of our clients weren't, they weren't doing so well and, you know, we couldn't charge them a monthly retainer if they're not even making money. So I think about 70% of our, our contracts were, were halted. I mean, I had to lay off some people, like it was a tough time, but it was perfect because now I had the time to dive into Afroblox and it worked out. It actually worked out perfectly for me. And the real driver was that, you know, like I said before, working with the agency, we hired offshore talent all the time, you know, and that was like, you know, the number one thing we would do and help our startups out. And for our small businesses, it was really hard because they couldn't even afford that. They didn't know what they needed. They didn't know where to start. And in the back of my mind, like solving these problems for small businesses was always there. Like, how can I do it? Because even beyond that, you know, I would have small businesses 
approach us, you know, to contract us to do their marketing and they, they couldn't afford it. Like you couldn't afford the overhead in the agency. So, you know, I, I would plug them with a graphic designer that I knew or a web developer that I knew. And Tangai was doing the same thing on the other side. You know, he was here in the States and people would say, hey, you're a developer. Can you help me build this website? And he didn't have the time to do it because he had a full time job. So he would connect them with a developer he knew back home in Zimbabwe or a designer that he knew back home in Zimbabwe. So we were doing the same thing in two different spaces. And, you know, at first, like I said, I wasn't I wasn't all in right away when he first told me the idea because I didn't necessarily see the vision. But after we sat down and chopped it up and kind of went through his vision, it really aligned with a lot of the things that I wanted to build. So it was it was a natural transition for me. And COVID just so happened to shut the world down. So I had a little bit of time on my hands <laughs> at that time. Yeah, that's it. I mean, sometimes it's the way the timing works for some of this stuff. So that makes a lot of sense. So tell us a little bit more about Afroblocks itself. So maybe describe what the average, or if there's such a thing, or kind of the profile of a resource. And then maybe what does a client look like? What is the profile of a client? So most of our freelancers are young people who have, you know, finished college recently in the last five years. It's not exclusive, though. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, there's some ageism or anything. But most of our freelancers are young people who have other jobs. They have full-time jobs or they have part-time jobs because they struggle to find a gig in, you know, whatever they studied in college, whether it's computer science or, or design or things like that. So um, they hail from seven, seven different countries. We have freelancers from Zimbabwe, of course, South Africa, Ghana, Zambia, Nigeria, Kenya. Yeah, they come from these different places. They're on the younger side. Most of them are in their 20s. And they're professionals, you know, they're skilled at what they do. They just haven't had an opportunity to get as many jobs uh, across the globe as other people. And then on the demand side, on the buyer side, it really happened organically the way we decided to target this market. But our first 300 customers, we, we went back and we gave them a survey and we said, hey, why did you choose us? And the overwhelming majority said, hey, I chose you guys because there was a cultural affinity there. I'd never seen African freelancers. You know, I'm an expat or I'm a first generation immigrant or I'm a black American or I'm a black Canadian. And, you know, I want to work with people I have a cultural affinity with. And we decided to lean into that. And when we did the research, we found out that there's 42 million businesses across the diaspora that are considered small businesses. Of these businesses in the U.S. in particular, only 7% have more than five employees on their team. So there's this huge, huge opportunity to help these smaller businesses, help these solopreneurs build out their businesses, build out their teams with affordable quality talent coming from Africa. And we like to say, you know, we're helping our customers build better businesses and projects, and we're helping our freelancers build better careers. So everyone's, you know, everyone is benefiting across the platform. And how do you find freelancers? I mean, do you, do you go recruiting them? Do you have to go through a screening process? Like, how do you find these aspiring folks? Like like we said before, the first 600 <laughs> that we onboarded into the platform found us, right? Like it just, it, it happened organically and it's pretty much been that way since we launched. And again, we, we're just a, a little bit over a year old. Um, we have about 3,000 freelancers on the platform. Most of them have come from word of mouth. I, I think the overwhelming majority, we haven't put any, any ad dollars or digital advertising dollars into acquiring freelancers. We're actually at the point now, you know, we're vetting freelancers, but we're really focused on building out the demand side of the platform because we have more freelancers at the moment um, than we actually have jobs being completed. So it's been fairly easy. Um, in addition to that, we've partnered with several universities. We've partnered with several tech hubs throughout Africa, um, you know, to, to kind of, you know, present the opportunity to their talent. And when you think about the fact that most freelancers, you know, work on three to four platforms anyway, 
it just makes sense, you know, that, you know, once we get the word out and once we, we start to enter into new markets that we can get people onboarding into the platform on the freelancer side. And so you mentioned from the client perspective, it sounds like there's smaller businesses, maybe startups themselves. Do you have to involve yourself in their projects from a management or liaison point of view? Or basically that once the freelancer signed up, they're kind of, you know, working directly with the client? Great question, Dan. So that's a unique offering about our platform. That's one of the things that we feel makes us unique. In addition to asking those first 300 customers about, you know, why they chose us, we asked, you know, why would they come back? And again, the overwhelming majority said, hey, we'll come back to you guys because you have an attention to detail. You actually talk to us to understand our project before you, you know, you just give us a bunch of freelancers to hire. And we decided to lean into that as well. So we, we built in a project management layer with each job that comes onto the platform. We have a project manager who helps you hire a freelancer. So you're not just given thousands of developer profiles to search through and, you know, find the one that fits for you, especially if you're low on time and, you know, you don't know the difference between a PHP developer or a React developer or whatever. So we have our project manager help you and say, hey, okay, this is what you need to build. You know, you want to do a Shopify redesign. You don't need a, you know, you don't need a database developer for that. You know, you just need a designer. Here are three designers that are great with Shopify redesign. You know, and this is why this one is great. This is why this one is great. These are their rates. These are the time zones they work in. You know, based on what you said, I, you know, these are the three that work. And then, you know, they'll help you pick those three. Once you pick the freelancer, that customer service agent or that project manager, we haven't 100% settled on a name for them yet, but that person is actually with you through the, through the duration of the project. So they're making sure milestones are hit. They're making sure deadlines are hit. They're making sure communication is flowing well from both sides. You know, they're making sure the freelancer is respected and their time is respected. And they're making sure the customer gets exactly what they want. And we feel like that's unique because again, it's this blind spot that the bigger platforms have missed of small business owners who aren't necessarily technically savvy, who don't spend their days, you know, hiring developers or understanding coding languages, but they need the same work done. Like we're entering in space now where you can't really survive you know, if your business is not in the, in the digital space or you don't have certain things with your business. So that's how it works. And then in terms of vetting, you know, we expanded this model to even help us vet our freelancers. Working with freelancers, and I think I mentioned it earlier, they can be the most talented people in the world. They can be the most skilled people in the world, but you can always run into problems in terms of communication and project management. That's just an issue, whether you have the technical know-how or not. Like, you know, I've spent money with freelancers and, and it didn't work out and we wasted a lot of time and things like that in the past. So we wanted to really attack that, right? We wanted to make sure that we made it easy for you to work with a freelancer. And we took that pain point away, you know, in terms of the project management and stuff. So when we onboard these guys, we not only vet them for their technical talent, but we also have a project manager work with them for a month on each job just to make sure that they understand the customer service part of freelancing. We're building freelancers and we're telling them, hey, this is a business, you know, this is your business, this is your service, you know, and there, there's more than just knowing how to code and knowing how to design. You actually have to know how to treat customers and, and make sure things are done in the proper way. So tell me, like, you know, at some point when this thing is a success or the biggest success that you can imagine, like, what does that look like to you? Like, if you're going to go back to that massive family of yours at some point and say, yeah, we did it. Afroblocks did it. What does that look like? Like, what's the big vision for the company? At the risk of getting too deep. Uh, 
Not possible on my show. Gotcha. Okay. So Tungai and I, this is where we really align, right? Like when he told me his first big vision, I got it right away, right? We call ourselves a pan-African platform, right? And we've talked about how we help small businesses throughout the diaspora and we help freelancers on the continent. I think one of the biggest problems with Black people across the globe in terms of accelerating our advancement in society is that we think too small. You know, here I'm from Chicago, you know, like we're here in the States and we, when we think about black issues or issues that affect black people, we usually limit that view to what's going on here in the States. And that's not a good thing. I think once we open our eyes to, to realize that, you know, there's millions and millions of black people across this globe. And even though we're super diverse and like even on the continent, like there's, there's so much diversity and there's it's not a monolith at all. And even here in the States, black people aren't a monolith, right? Like we're different. You go to, to the South and it's different from New York or the West Coast or whatever. So you know, we have to be able to use that diversity as a tool and use that the vastness of the diaspora as a tool as well. And I think it will help us across the board advance in life. So the biggest vision for us is really to create a way for economy and commerce to travel throughout the diaspora and to support businesses wherever you are, you know, if you are of African descent. Like that's the big vision. In terms of, of the business model, we, we feel like, you know, in 10 years, well, we don't feel like we actually know in 10 years, there's going to be a talent shortage, right? A global talent shortage. All of the consulting firms are, you know, predicting this talent shortage of about 85 million people. You know, there's $8.5 trillion on the table that could be lost because there won't be enough people to fill these next generation jobs. And our thesis is that the globe is going to turn to Africa to fill those jobs. I mean, it's the youngest region in the world. I think it's at 1.3 billion people today. And that number is supposed to swell to like two point something. And in the next few years, 60% of the population is under the age of 25. You got a lot of money being poured into the tech hubs. And in just the past few years, you've seen, you know, the amount of tech hubs grow from, you know, a few hundred to over 600 today. You know, so it's all of these factors that are pouring around Africa that we just see it as, as an opportunity to build those rails that allow, you know, the small business owner in Los Angeles to hire, you know, a graphic designer, as well as, you know, the Fortune 500 company that needs to move you know, data science team or, or machine learning team to be able to build that team in Africa. And, and we're building that the rails for them to do that. That's the big vision. Anyone who wants to work with African talent, because they will, will be using our platform in some respect, whether that's for payments, collaboration, or to find talent. I love it. Thinking very, very big. Well, we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Roger Roman from Afroblocks. Hi, this is Nick Hughes from Founders Live a growing global community of entrepreneurial inspiration, education, and entertainment. The Founders Live movement includes unforgettable live-streamed happy hour pitch competitions held in over 50 cities worldwide. And the monthly events are coupled with a growing online platform where articles, videos, expert talks, technologies, and tools together help create world-class entrepreneurs. Our vision is to raise the tide for all startup regions but specifically second and third tier markets around the world to ultimately power the pulse of early stage entrepreneurship and creativity. We'd love for you to be a part of the movement. Check it out and join for free at founderslive.com. So we're back with Roger from Afroblocks. So Roger, tell me, you are in LA and Tangai, your co-founder is in Zimbabwe. What's an advantage of that distance? And then what are some of the challenges of that time zone or physical? Yeah, so the challenge, I'll say the challenge right away is meetings, right? Like we schedule meetings and we'll, you know, we'll just ask the other for an invite and 
you know, oftentimes we don't consider what <laughs> what time that meeting's going to be for the other person. So it'll just pop up like, oh, I got a 1 a.m. meeting tonight. OK, but, I, you know, we're used to it at this point, especially after, you know, going through tech stars and, and dealing with it that way. But I think the advantage is that we're always on. You know, Zimbabwe is nine hours ahead of us. So, you know, my morning is Tungai's night and his night is my morning. And that means, you know, someone is always tending to the business. Someone is always there to get things going. And, you know, when I wake up, ton of things that he's done and he's shooting me messages like, hey, I did this, did this, you know, where is this or when are we going to finish this? And when I go to bed at night, you know, I'll send him a message like, hey, man, this is what I knocked out today. This is what we got to do. And usually by the time I wake up, he's answered it, you know, and the same thing. Like he'll send me something. And by the time he wakes up, he'll answer it. Now, I will say Tangai is a unique person because like he rarely sleeps. So I'll send him a message thinking he's sleeping and then, you know, and not expecting a response. And I get the response. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? But that's been the bonus part. You know, we've built this company. We've built it in a centralized way from the start. And I think it really supports our thesis that remote work, you know, and building these decentralized teams is the future of work, you know, and if we can't do it ourselves, then how can we expect other people to do it? It's been fun, though. I will say it's, I had, it's taken some getting used to, but it's been fun. I can identify I have a team in India, and so I'm the only one in the U.S., so I basically have to go on their schedule when, uh, when we have meetings and stuff. And yeah, you can get used to it. Have you been to Zimbabwe yourself yet? Not yet. So I'm going in October. For I was planning to go before COVID and things just kind of slowed down. And, and now even that's in jeopardy if I can go in October, because I know we actually just had this conversation this morning. Zimbabwe is shut down again because they've had a spike in their cases. So, you know, who knows if when it'll happen. Um, hopefully it'll happen soon, but I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, I'll bet it's going to be really interesting. I know for me, like when I deal with people, even in the United States, and it's like, then you go to meet them and you see where they are. And it's like, oh, this is so different than what I imagined. And let's talk a little bit about the journey at like fundraising and tech stars. How has that been so far? Have you raised money? Are you out raising money? How was that journey? So, you know, we've bootstrapped up into this point. The first money that we take in was from tech stars. You know, when you join the accelerator, you get a check from them. That's been instrumental, kind of helping us grow the business because before that we were we were bootstrapped, like I said. But since we finished the program about a, a little over a month ago now, you know, we started our seed round, our seed fundraising round. And it's been interesting to say the least. You know, we do have some commitments. We're about a quarter of the way through the round. Got some commitments this week, you know, yesterday and earlier today. So that's great. But it's been a challenge, man. It's I wouldn't be being honest if I said, you know, it was an easy road or, you know, it was fun. It's been a challenge. You, you know, you have this thing that you're building, you have all these great metrics and you feel like you've checked all the boxes and, you know, it's still not enough for some, you know, investors. And, you know, that can be discouraging, right? Like that's when you have to lean back on that confidence and that belief in yourself and what you're doing because... It can get discouraging to hear, you know, you know, you can go two weeks without a yes. You know, you can go three weeks without <laughs> without a yes. And, you know, having those no's build up can be discouraging. You know, you just got to keep pushing and, and you'll find the right investors for you and maybe have to be a little unorthodox. You know, at the risk of I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because I'm in a great position and I feel like, you know, we've been blessed and we've been lucky to be where we are. But it's hard for black founders, man, just to be real. Like, it's tough. I mean, you know, you, you try to find investors who will believe in what you believe in. And a lot of times those investors come from similar backgrounds as you or, you know, they look like you. And there's only so many of those investors out there, right? Like, I feel like, you know, in terms of VC and especially early stage, 
you know, we all know the black, <laughs> the black VCs, right? Because there's about, you know, a good 20, 30 of them that we all know about and, and they're kind of famous. And, you know, to their credit, they can't say yes to every deal. So I know it's hard for them too, but it's a struggle. And then, you know, once you venture outside of that, it's really hard to find people, especially where we are, because not only are we a, a black startup, but, you know, we're an African startup as well. So like, it's kind of like a double negative, you know, <laughs> in terms of finding, uh, you know, investors who see the vision, who understand that we're trying to build something that, you know, of course, makes money, grows and can be a huge enterprise, but also helps people along the way in terms of, you know, getting people jobs and things like that. So it's been a challenge. I'll say all that to say it's been a challenge still going through it. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. So excited about that. But it's not for the week. Yeah, it is a hard, hard journey. And on top of that, you're trying to run the business and build the business. It's a side activity, right? There's part of the activity that isn't really contributing directly to your business. So it's a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice. So tell me, I want to pick up on one thing that you mentioned. So I'm wondering, do you have any investors, whether they've committed or not, who have shown positive interest who don't look like you? Yes, we have. Actually, we've had some angel investors who actually spoke with a group of investors from Canada today, who white men who, you know, really into what we're building. We've also had some interest from the East. Uh, we've talked to a bunch of uh, VCs from Japan as well, who, who have shown interest in what we're building. And then here, of course, in the States, you know, some of the VC firms, you know, we've taken meetings with and they've shown some interest as well. But for the most part, you know, it's been people who actually, you know, understand Africa or understand, you know, Black America or whatever. Like it's been people who have some type of connection there who's taken the most interest. But like we said, like I said before, there's only so many of those people out there. So, you know, you, you're kind of forced to expand beyond that. And, and hopefully you can find people who, you know, who see the vision and who agree with the vision outside of that. But our cap table, you know, I remember at one point we said we wanted to have a black cap table. It's going to be pretty diverse and that's okay. You know, we have a black founding team. So, you know, the diverse cap table, I think, I think we could be okay with that. I mean, the reason I asked about that is I'm wondering, you know, without trying to live in somebody else's head, what do you think was sort of the positive indicators? Was it about who you are, the traction, the opportunity to sort of get people into that mode of they potentially want to invest? Yeah, I think it was a mixture of both. So I think Tungai and I both have solid pedigrees as founders, having built something before and that having pushed something out to market before. I think that worked in our favor. I think Techstars was definitely a big plus, right? Like knowing that we were able to to be accepted and to actually get through the program that has helped out. And then I think people are starting to see the opportunity that is Africa, right? Like it's, there's just so much opportunity there. You know, usually when you hear about things in the news or you hear about opportunities in the news, it's kind of too late, right? Like, you know, and I think we're starting to get to that point with Africa, but we're still in the early stages and, and not a lot of people have Africa on their radar in, in terms of investment and, and business and scalability. So I think those three, I would like to think that, you know, Tangai and I drove a lot of that interest, you know, just because we're amazing and we're dope and we're cool people. But <laughs> but I do know that the opportunity that lies in Africa and the ability to, to, to build scalable businesses there is uh, is something that has driven some interest as well. That makes a lot of sense. And that's what we want to see, right? We want to see people appreciate the opportunity for what it is. And there's a bonus, like you said, you're a super dope team. And that's just, you know, sort of the gravy on top of that. So I did want to ask a little bit about China. So there's an interesting, you know, I don't know if it's a controversy or there's different perspectives, right? China has really come into Africa big time. And some people look at it as, 
they're willing to kind of come in and sort of build things from the foundation and help to put tech and dollars in and other people looking at it more like it's economic colonialism and they're just kind of like take advantage. So from your perspective and where you sit with this, you know, sort of this platform, how do you view that? I mean, have you had people from China talk to you or approach you or anything or? Yeah, we've actually had some investors from China. We've actually had some customers in China as well. So the China thing is, it's interesting, right? I haven't met anyone who has a clear view of how they feel about it, right? And being the fact that I'm here in the States, I'm not a continental African, right? Like I'm here in LA, you know, I can only speak on it from the outside looking in, but I've heard both sides, right? Just as you have, I've heard people say, hey, you know, this is a new form of colonialism. Then I've heard people say, hey, you know, China is already an empire. You know, China is an empire that's been built for thousands and thousands of years. You know, and they don't have any interest in coming here in Africa. This is a purely an exchange of resources. I, look, I think any situation where you're dealing with trade and you're dealing with international trade and things like that, it can be exploitative, right? Someone can be getting used. And, and I think that's just a natural human thing. I, I think the way that you get around that is to just make sure that your interests are covered when you're doing these deals. And, and you do that just by having leaders and the people who are making these deals, you know, look out for your best interest. So in terms of China moving into Africa, I, I wouldn't say I'm opposed to it because I'm seeing the same thing come from the West. Like you're seeing a lot of the tech companies move into Africa as well. Like you're seeing Twitter and all these companies, you know, whereas China is focusing on infrastructure. You have a lot of American and Western companies focusing on, you know, the tech infrastructure and things like that. So, you know, I think China, just like, you know, the Western country, they see the opportunity and it's really up, up to the continental Africans the people there, the leadership, to make sure that they have the best people, you know, the people's best interest at heart, right? And it's it's tough when you're talking about 54 different countries, right? If, if you can't get into one country, you just go into another. And there's always going to be somebody somewhere willing to sell the people out. But the people of Africa, just like, you know, the people across the diaspora, they're resilient, you know, just like we're resilient here. And I think we're coming into a space where we can use this technology that we're building and the technology that we have to make sure things are more equitable. Whether, you know, there's partnerships with China or there's partnerships with the West, it's real. There's a lot of gray. I'll say that. It's not black and white at all. In terms of China, man, and I support anything that helps people, you know, do better. Like, I feel like, you know, it's not realistic to think that China is going to come in and invest into the infrastructure of Africa and not expect anything in return. And like I said before, as long as that thing is not exploitive in nature, then, then I think it's fine. I don't know how good a lawyer you would be, Roger, but you definitely would be a good political scientist. That was pretty <laughs> articulate there. So as we look to wrap up our conversation, I think one of the big questions I like to ask people, and this is particularly interesting because you're a repeat founder with all black teams. So it's interesting, but let's, you can pick the time you want, but I always like to say, if you could go back before your entrepreneurial journey began, and again, it could be before Afroblocks or before, you know, one of the other opportunities and speak to that Roger and with the wisdom of this Roger, what would you tell him? What would you say to avoid? What would you say to double down on? What kind of wisdom would you share with him? I would tell him for one to buy Bitcoin and don't sell it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the number one thing I say. Hey, don't sell your Bitcoin, right? Like, you know, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin back in the day. I sold a lot of it when I thought we hit an all-time high. So, you know, I still got a little bit and I, I'm holding on to that. But that would be one thing. And then I would, I guess the best advice I would give is, you know, not to get too down on yourself when things don't go well, right? You know, when you're living in those moments where, you know, you started this venture and it failed or things didn't quite work out right or you're getting laid off from a job and things like that, like, you know, you can really beat yourself up. 
And even though you're chugging along and you're, you're pushing like internally, you know, you kind of hold some of those things. So I would say, hey, man, you're absolutely right. You know, to have ultimate belief in yourself. Don't let anything get you down. It's just another, you know, there's always another opportunity around the corner. And my life has kind of worked out that way with opportunities just, just popping up, you know, and I think it's because I've put myself in those positions to be prepared. I, you know, I'm always learning and always looking to meet people. So yeah, just, just keep going. That would be the device. Buy Bitcoin, keep going, don't stop. I love it. It's like back to the future, right? Where the Biff gets that magazine. I think about it all the time. <laughs> well, this has been great. So, but before we go, let, let's put a call out to Unfound Nation, our audience. Is there ways that we can be helpful to you or to Afroblocks? Sure. Yeah. I mean, listen, Afroblocks.com, you know, affordable, fast quality service from world-class talent, whether it's graphic design, software development, web design, virtual assistants, founders. I know you need virtual assistants because you're very busy. Any of those things that we can actually help you out with, we'd love to help you out. We actually built this platform for you with you in mind. So yeah, check us out, Afroblocks.com. We'll take care of you. If you mentioned that you heard us on, on Founders Unfound, we'll give you a discount. I just can't tell you how much that discount will be, but I guarantee you if you mention Dan or you mention Founders Unfound, we'll take care of you. Dan is, is, is our people. He's good people. So come check us out. And then, you know, anyone on the continent that's listening, if you're, you know, you got some talent and you want to jump into the freelance space, check us out. Uh, we have a bunch of resources for freelancers outside of just plugging them with jobs. You know, we have a bunch of free classes from DataCamp where you can learn machine learning and artificial intelligence and data science. And we've had courses with a number of platforms that, you know, just kind of help you out. And it's, it's nothing like belonging to a community. You know, we have the Afroblox Builder community that um, is growing by the day. So if you're a freelancer, check us out. We can help you make some money. If you're here, if you're a small business owner or you got this idea that's been, you know, eating away at you for some time now and you just haven't started and you need some help, we're here to help you. Check us out. I love it. And any other social handles or ways to get a hold of you? At Afroblox on Twitter, at Afroblox on Instagram, pretty much across the board. I'm at Frank Jr. on Instagram, and I think my name is Roger Roman on <laughs> Roger L. Roman II on Twitter. Um, I'm not on social media that much, so you know, if you want to see what Afroblox is doing, I suggest you just follow <laughs> Afroblox. But yeah, A F R I B L O C K S, and we're on all the social platforms. Check us out. Well, this has been awesome, Roger. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate you, Dan. Thank you for all that you do, man, for founders. Like, we need voices like yours. We need platforms like yours. And, and I definitely appreciate it. We'd like to thank our guest, Roger Roman, and our sponsor, Founders Live. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya. Audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.